Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Hey, I'm uh, sorry, everybody, that we uh, went two weeks without a new episode. Um, Sometimes these things happen. As I explained to a lot of you over um, Twitter, uh, the interviews tend to come in bunches, basically whenever I can schedule them. And unfortunately, the bunches were few and far between recently which is why we had the two-week gap. And and as I said to a couple of you on Twitter, it's sort of a miracle that we went almost two years uh, without a gap like that. Um, But the good news is is that I have a new bunch uh, scheduled all this month, and this episode is the first one of those. It came about because um, I think regular listeners will know that um, automotive tech, you know, especially things like autonomous car technology and things like that have been coming up a lot recently on the show. And actually, if things go to plan, uh, it might come up a lot more in the near future. But if I'm being honest, this is something uh, auto tech and automobiles in general that is a bit outside my wheelhouse. I mean, I, you know, know web technology, I know gadgets, but um while I, I'm aware of things like uh, electronic vehicles and autonomous vehicles, I really only know about this technology at a distance. Um, and so because this has been coming up so much recently, uh, I've gone down a bit of a research rabbit hole that, while it's a, a bit beyond our uh, largely 90s chronology, um, has been completely fascinating to me. And so... As I've been catching up with all the things that I didn't know about Autotech, I thought it was time for another analysis episode, this time to educate myself, but also all of you as well, about the history and the present and the future of automobile tech. Electronic vehicles, Tesla, autonomous vehicles, but also, you know, things basic like, you know, recent car tech, like navigation systems and the like. So to help me with that, I spoke with Mike Duchesne, who is a 20-year veteran, like myself, of the web, but also a veteran of uh, Automobile Magazine, Car and Driver, and um, so as a, as a journalist, generally an observer and participant in the advances that the automobile industry has made over the last couple of decades as digital technology and cars have collided. As I say towards the end of this episode, I I truly learned so much in this particular talk, so uh, please enjoy this conversation with Mike Duchesne. Mike Duchesne, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Good to chat with you, Brian. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of these formalities because even though I've had people on the show before that I've known tangentially or known professionally or whatever, uh, in the interest of this show being, <laughs> being historical and, and uh, impartial, we should tell everyone that uh, we, we are quite good friends to the point that um, we've both been groomsmen in each other's weddings. So um, we can, we can <laughs> dispense with the formality, I guess. Yeah, uh, we, we've known each other a few years. 
so, uh, Mike, you are going to help me um, sort of educate me and get my mind around uh, auto tech, because as you know very well, I, I don't know much about <laughs> the automobile industry. But um, as, as listeners to the show know, it's coming up a lot lately, and it's coming up a lot more, so I've been researching it a lot lately. So um, as, a, as a journalist and, and um, in new media, you've been um, covering and involved in the automobile industry for about 15 years or so? Yeah, close to 20 years in one form or another. I, um, I feel like that you're kind of like me in the sense that... Um, that you know, you started your career right when the web was taking off, and so that sort of sort of shaped your career. Were you were you a web guy first, or a, a journalism and a, and a car guy first? I was a web guy first. I started with a couple uh, non car related startups in '96 uh, and '97, um, and worked at those for quite a while. Well, eventually freelancing uh, in automotive journalism because cars were always my uh, my hobby and my passion. And I didn't start working in automotive journalism professionally until 2004. So there was a good eight year stretch um, where I was working on things completely unrelated to, to automotive primarily. Um, in 94, I joined Automobile Magazine as the uh, online editor. And at that time, there was no such thing as a, as a product role. Online editor meant you ran the website, and that was everything from user experience to design to integration of ads to, of course, uh, editorial, covering what people uh, wanted to read about and see and hear. That was 94? That was 04. 04, 04. Um, so, okay, that's, that's actually kind of uh, my first question then. So... Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in, a, in in media and lots of different you know angles of media about how um, the web has transformed their business or, or transformed how they do business. So I'm I'm curious your impressions on on how um, like you've worked at Car and Driver, you worked at at Automobile Magazine, like you said. Like so, these are these are specific publications that that for years and years and years. Um, develop these brands and these reputations about being experts in 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 cars and reviewing cars and, and analyzing where the, the the automotive industry was going. So how did how did the web and the coming of things like social media affect you know that particular niche of of automobile journalism? It's funny. In some ways, it was completely turned upside down by the web because. With the advent of sites like Edmunds and AutoTrader back in 97, the expectation for timeliness and quantity of coverage um, went up dramatically. But at the same time, things didn't change as much as in other verticals because instead of being a news and entertainment vertical, automotive is still primarily a purchase research vertical. And that means that consumers expect the same things from it that they always have from printed material or otherwise, want reliable, trustworthy information. So a lot of the brands that exist today in digital are actually doing things very similar to what print was doing before the internet was a thing. They're writing reviews of cars, they're comparing cars, they're sending out surveys to find out how reliable cars are. Um, and there's still a relatively small group of journalists who 
have access to all the different vehicles in the market who can objectively compare them one against the other. So while there are some new faces that came with the advent of the uh, internet, and most notably Edmunds, which um, does a lot of pricing and reviews, and, and Auto Trader, which is uh, by far the largest source of, of vehicle inventory, um, it, what consumers are looking for and the basic process they use to research and purchase a car hasn't fundamentally changed in 20 years. But what about things like, um, you know, having the infrastructure to to test and, and do rigorous, you know, high level testing like like car and driver? You know, I know in Ann Arbor has facilities for things like this. So, again, um, acknowledging my complete ignorance of all this stuff, when when things like the blogs come around, like does does a Jalopnik have the same capacity to do the sort of high level review and rigorous testing that like a car and driver has? It's funny. That, that's a great way to kind of sum up how much things have stayed the same. Of all the newcomers to the space, the only one that does a substantive amount of testing that wasn't already doing it before the Internet is Edmunds. Edmunds tests a lot of cars, but Jalopnik does not uh, test cars. They sort of have people go out on the roads and test drive them, but they're not taking them to tracks for the most part and doing instrumented testing. So the, the large outfits that are doing that are Consumer Reports, same as it always has, car and driver, motor trend, road and track, automobile, same as they always have. And then uh, to a lesser extent, Edmonds as well has started doing that, and they've started to pour significant resources into it. But, um, but that price of entry is very large. You need a significant staff to do it. They have to be trained engineers. You need expensive equipment to do it. Um, and the guys who've done it for a long time still do it reasonably well. So it, uh, entrance into the space, and Jalopnik is a great example, who've tried to edge in with, uh, with edgier content, less objective testing and more um, snark and, uh, and, and kind of salacious news in the vein of, of the entertainment space, have not really become material businesses. Um, and they don't materially impact the car shopping process in the way that uh, the more traditional brands do. Now, having said that, everything is not staying the same. The way people actually buy cars is changing a lot. There are a lot of new entrants to the space um, who are working on helping people connect to dealers more seamlessly. Auto Trader obviously was the first to fundamentally change that by putting all the car listings online um, and continues to be a billion-dollar-a-year-plus business because of that. Um, and everyone else is jumping on that bag bandwagon, and everyone's trying to build a better mousetrap for how to simplify the car buying process. But no one's really cracked the nut yet. In 20 years, uh, ultimately, the vast, vast majority of people still research their car based on reviews, see some listings, and then go into a dealer to negotiate the purchase. So you're saying that the way I need to think of uh, automobile journalism as a, as a niche is it is – 95% about um consumer education and and um you know educating someone before they make a purchase. It absolutely is. It's about educating them, helping them build their confidence in which car they want to buy, from which dealer they want to buy it. That's more the auto trader end of it. Um and then ultimately how much they want to pay for it and so on, which some of the newer entrants um uh, are working on as well. And you're also saying that in a lot of ways, the web has allowed that that end of it, the the 95% of it actually to advance in ways that were never possible before in, in print and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, 
if you go to research a car purchase now, you instantly have access to info on all the different cars. The info you get isn't really fundamentally different from what was out there before. It's just a lot easier and quicker to get access to it. Um, but interestingly, if you look at how, say, travel has been changed by a TripAdvisor or restaurants have been changed by Yelp, that transformation of peer-generated content hasn't really substantively impacted the automotive space yet. So there's still a lot of um, room and a lot of, of development that has yet to happen in the automotive space. Uh, expert reviews are still primarily what's available online and what people uh, research before they purchase a vehicle. Even even in this Reddit era, you, you you're not you're not encountering as much fanboy flame war stuff as as other other people are. Definitely among the enthusiasts you are, but the mainstream audience is not participating in that before they buy a car. All right, so um, let's let's let the educating Brian uh, section begin. So I want to start with um, because I've I've been researching a lot lately uh, Tesla. Hopefully, um, we're going to be talking to some Tesla people uh, very shortly. Um, I I again knowing so little about um, the automotive industry in general. I think I had a vague idea that electric car electric motors um, were not new. In fact. I, I read a, a statistic actually this morning that around 1900, um, electric cars were actually a third of all vehicles on the road. So, um, you know, they early on in, in car tech, they they're experimenting with steam engines, they're experimenting with electric engines and 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 gasoline powered engines and things like that. And um, so, the internal is it? Am I right in assuming that the internal combustion engine wins essentially because? In the early 1900s, you know, when the Model T comes around, oil is just so dirt cheap that it's it's just the the easiest way to go, the cheapest way to go. It was that, and it was also that battery technology was so bad that the range of the cars was very short, the recharge time was very long. So once the Model T came along, once the gasoline cars became simpler to operate, there was just no contest. I mean, people had no concept of you know, any environmental consequence of one versus the other, they just thought about what is, you know, what is the cost and convenience and the gas engine beat it by a mile. Wait, were, and uh, then, were, were electric motors also slower? Um, I don't think that was as much of an issue. I think that electric motors weren't really fast, but remember the Model T was not a high performance vehicle mm -hmm, mm -hmm. either. So I, I think, yeah, the Model T was probably a little bit quicker but the electric cars just weren't that practical at that time. And I think the bigger thing was that when the Model T came out, it was so affordable and so practical for so many people that everyone just forgot about electric cars. So, again, um, my my knowledge of, you know, the, the, the dream of, of electric vehicles, EV uh, technology sort of is basically only informed by that, that Who Killed the Electric Car documentary. So tell me, you know, based on on your observations of the industry and your career, um, by the by the late '90s, early 2000s, was EV technology on anybody's radar in any serious way? Because to someone like me who's not familiar, it seems like the idea of of EV cars sort of just came out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea had been percolating around since the 70s a little bit. And what really happened in the 
late 90s was that the government started to say, especially California with, with the California Air Resources Board, CARB, started to say, we have a real problem with vehicle emissions. We're going to mandate electric cars to jumpstart um, development. But everyone in the auto industry and everyone in automotive media, I should add, never believed at that time that it was in any way feasible. Um, the battery technology up until the mid-90s for electric cars was pretty much exactly the same as what it had been in those 1800s-era cars, lead-acid batteries. Um, and even as the technology started to evolve and, and nickel-metal hydride batteries made their way into cars um, in the latter half of the, or, I'm sorry, latter years of the 20th century, um, there were still really fundamental issues of weight, um, of cost, of vehicle range, of charge time, all these things that just made electric cars seem like very expensive, very impractical uh, folly. And for that reason, no one really believed it. GM did the EV1. Um, I, I take them at face value when they say that they lost a huge amount of money on it and, um, and, and there was no business case there. But I guess what's important to, to look at in hindsight is that at the time we were all looking at that through the lens of how things had always been in the current state of technology. We weren't looking at it through the lens of starting with a clean sheet of paper, what could we do? We were looking at it through the lens of given the current state of gasoline engine development and the current state of battery technology and charging infrastructure, what is feasible? And looked at through that lens, electric cars looked absolutely ridiculous and like a non-starter. So there were a few thousand made here and there. People who had them generally liked them, but they were often sold at a massive loss by the companies that, that made them. So forgive me if this is if this is beyond your technological ken, but um, so is it lithium-ion technology that is sort of the key uh, technological advance that around the beginning of the 2000s sort of changes the game a little bit? Um, it, look, battery technology will continue to evolve. Lithium ion is what was used in the Leaf and the Tesla Roadster mm -hmm. and Model mm -hmm. S um, that allowed them to make you know a significant gain compared to nickel metal hydride. It may be yet another battery technology that truly allows electric vehicle production to scale to the majority of vehicles. I, we don't know that. Right. Yet. Well, but 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 what I'm asking because I I, I want to get to to te Tesla specifically. So. Is it in the 2000s? Because Tesla starts with, with uh, lithium-ion for their first vehicles, right? Yep, and the Roadster. So, okay, so could we theorize then that um, because those were you know so commercially available, they're in everybody's laptops by that point and, and all sorts of other consumer devices, and they famously just string hundreds of them together for their, for their first uh, uh, test vehicles. So is, maybe that was the thing, is, the, is that, that that new... Um, uh, battery technology becoming cheaper and becoming commercially available was sort of the, the tipping point that allowed Tesla to, to, to happen. It was definitely important that that technology existed, but the technology existed and other car companies could have used it as well and didn't. I think the big tipping point was just that Tesla was not beholden to any old business model and went way out on a limb. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I predicted with 100% certainty that Tesla would fail mm -hmm. um, when they said we're going to, you know, what, what they did was they took a Lotus chassis and filled it up with 
a thousand and some pounds of battery and attached electric motors to it. It seemed like a crazy idea, but um, Tesla was the only company that said, we're just going to do it. We're going to make a long range electric vehicle. Screw what anyone says about it not being available. Um, and it's going to be very expensive, but we're just going to do it and prove that it can be done. Um, so would it have been possible with nickel metal hydride? It might have been, given the same sheer force of will. It would have been harder. Mm-hmm. It was still hard with lithium-ion batteries. Um, the, the, if you look at their first vehicle, it was very expensive. It was very impractical. Um, and it used up a significant portion of all the lithium-ion battery production available in the, in the world. Um, again, I, I, hopefully we're going to have more on this soon. But just, just for the purposes of this discussion, uh, a little background. Uh, Tesla is formed by Martin Eberhard and, and Mark Tarpening, who, who were Silicon Valley engineers. In fact, um, were early pioneers in, in actually e-book technology. Um, their company, uh, Nuvo Media, made something called the Rocket eBook um, that they were able to sell for uh, a lot of money uh, right before the bubble burst. And so when they, um, and again, I'm new to all this, so <laughs> I've just learned this recently. And it's, uh, in my opinion, the most fascinating startup story of like the last 30 years. And, and all this podcast is about is about startups. But they... Um, so when they they're 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 casting around for something to do and they they settle on um they want to do um an electric vehicle and you know famously everyone says to them you know there hasn't been a successful american startup in the automotive space since chrysler in the 1930s and like you're saying they just don't care it's not not to not to be a a silicon valley um you know rah rah guy here at the moment but Maybe it, it maybe it did have to take someone with that sort of Silicon Valley. We don't care. We're just engineers. We think this is cool. Let's give it a go to to make something like this happen. That and the fu money that they had, and ultimately Musk had mm-hmm. um, the the ability to look at it as a disruption that's going to take a long time and not a near term business model was the only thing that allowed it to survive. That's arguably why Fisker, which was a um, an electric car company, they made a slightly different product. It had a gas generator backup motor, but that's arguably why they didn't survive because they were trying to turn it into a profitable venture relatively quickly, and or that's what their investors expected, and and that did not happen. Um, but yeah, it took it took vision, um, and it took a willingness. You know, if, if you. Uh, I don't know Musk personally, but if you take what he says at face value, he looked at it as a long-term prospect. He looked at everything from um, changing energy production from coal to solar to building infrastructure to charge vehicles to um, battery capacity uh, to convincing people that an electric car could be desirable and sexy um, to convincing investors that ultimately would be disruptive in the market. And we can talk about all those things, but all the, you know, it was the magic combination of all those things that allowed Tesla to get at least where it is today versus um, not just other electric car companies, but as you said, all other car companies mm-hmm. that have attempted to, um, to enter the U.S. market. Well, let me throw another one at you, actually, because, again, from my recent research, what they, what they said they discovered was, you know, everyone would think, oh, you can't you can't start a, a new car company. There's an, an amazing barrier to entry that's basically the the insane levels of capital that you'd have to raise. But they said that 
they felt like they were at the right place at the right time because they discovered that a existing car manufacturers had outsourced so many things. Like you said, they use that, that chassis uh, from what's the company? Uh, Lotus. Was Lotus. The first car. Um, but then also things like, you know, there's so many tests that you have to do, you know, for, for safety, for, for roadworthiness and things like that. And, and by the early 2000s, you're able to do so much of that stuff um, on computers that the, the, the old barrier to entry, even 10 years previous, where you would have to raise hundreds of millions of dollars at least just to get a prototype vehicle out, they were able to do for comparatively less capital. They they had the perfect storm of a few things. That was definitely one of them. Um, the so many many parts of cars today are supplier provided, and so people in the industry often call the Tesla Model S a supplier car. Tesla makes you know that's their current volume car. They they sold uh, I think about fifty thousand last year. Um, they make the body, they make the uh, battery pack and the drive systems, but everything else in the car from the seats, the climate control, the window switches, you name it, all comes from the same suppliers who supply companies like Mercedes and, um, and others. So definitely there was, a, there was a capability for them to go out and, and buy a lot of the commodity parts that weren't specific to an electric car. For the first vehicle, just to prove it out, they used the whole chassis from the Lotus Elise. So they really just had to build the electric drivetrains and the battery systems. And, um, and there was some customization, you know, body panels and, and, and so forth. Um, but the other thing that really helped Tesla was the implosion of the U.S. auto industry uh, at, the, um, at the end of the aughts, because there was a huge amount of talent that bled out of GM and Chrysler at that time, hmm. um, people who knew everything about um, manufacturing cars and chassis and, you know, all the tricks of the trade. And those companies lost a massive amount of brain power at that time. And Tesla, through sheer happenstance, was able to snap a lot of those people up. I mean, the promise of a good salary, the, uh, the California lifestyle, hmm. and working on something really interesting was, was really attractive to a lot of people. So that hasn't been reported super heavily, but it's definitely the case that if you look at the LinkedIn profiles of lots and lots of Tesla engineers at that time, um, you'll see that they were in Detroit beforehand. And so also what I've, you know, what, what someone like me, when I discover this, um, this is what gets me excited. Um, in a way, having, having an all-electric vehicle using electric technology allows you to use digital technology. So, you know, not only... Famously, do you not have to ever change the oil, but you can do the magic things that Tesla <laughs> we see doing, like improving the car via over-the-air software updates and things like that. So in a way, um, it, they're sort of is it, is it true to think of it as they're sort of rediscovering a better way to construct a car, a, a better motor, <laughs> a better system for cars? I think they are. And by the way, I should say full disclosure, um, I am I am long on Tesla. I also own a Tesla car. So, you know, but that said, I, I am in those positions because I, I believe what I'm saying here. Um, it's almost two unrelated things that you ask about. Building a pure electric car um, is a different way of thinking about drive componentry. And really the, 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 uh, technological advance there is more the batteries than the drive motor. The drive motor Tesla is, is great, but 
but the the battery technology is what's been holding back electric cars all these years. But the connected car is something that's really happened in parallel. And what Tesla has done is they've combined um, state-of-the-art electric propulsion with state-of-the-art connected car technology, which, so, you know, what you talked about was over-the-air updates. Um, Mm -hmm. And Tesla is by far and away the most advanced with over-the-air updates. They, They put a new OS on your car remotely, sometimes every few weeks, sometimes even more uh, if, if they've discovered a bug or as, as happened once, if someone discovers a potential security flaw, they can flash the cars, all of them the next day. No one else has done that. So that was kind of a fundamental um, fee shift in, in car connectivity. But anyone else could have. There's nothing about a Tesla being electric that allows Tesla to do that. Okay, Mercedes wait, no, wait. could have done that. that. Okay, okay. I really need you to unpack that for me. So... I'm I'm assuming that the reason that Tesla can create a ludicrous mode or whatever whatever they call it, um, and forget about delivering it over the air, if I'm I've been assuming that if I have an internal combustion engine and I want to make my car go faster or, or my manufacturer says hey we can make your car go faster I would have to come in and they would have to switch out some physical part and, and you know tweak it and do all this stuff, but you're saying that. That that's not true. That that even even internal combustion based cars can do similar things. Um, it, it's nuanced. Um, the ludicrous mode that Tesla rolled out, which is basically just a higher uh, higher amperage capability of the um, power system to deliver um, power to the batteries, was actually based on a hardware change that Tesla made. Um, but there have also been improvements that Tesla has made to efficiency um, and so forth over the air based on subtle changes to the algorithms used for, you know, in, say, in a dual motor car, which motor operates when. But that same kind of engine computer optimization over the air could be done with an internal combustion car as well. They have a computer that governs it, that some of them are connected. It's just that the, no other car company ever designed the cars with over-the-air flashing in mind. If you want to flash your BMW, um, you need to physically hook it up to a proprietary ten dollars or $20,000 computer at a BMW dealer um, where they take a file and load it to the car over a period of many hours, a process that often doesn't work and they have to repeat. So the same process exists. There's no reason that BMW couldn't have designed all its cars to do over-the-air updates. It's just that Tesla was the first one to say, we want to do this because we're going to be iterating rapidly, and also it just makes sense. Um, my guess is that no one else did it because, A, they had never done it that way before, and, B, they um, were really scared of their lawyers. That's, that's a big difference also with Tesla is that Musk um, runs roughshod over his lawyers where the lawyers run the roost at the big car companies. And so the lawyers will say, there's no way you can do over the updates. What if someone hacks it? and crashes the car into a wall, and we're liable. Musk said, make it secure. Um, make sure that we're able to, to update it quickly if, if uh, there are security concerns. Um, and, and we're just going to do it. And they did it. And so now everyone's kind of looking at it and saying, well, wait a minute, why did we never do that? And you have owners of cars, say, like a, a BMW i3, which is uh, BMW's most advanced 
vehicle. It's an electric car made out of carbon fiber, super sophisticated. And the owners are saying, gee, why do I have to go to a dealer and mm. wait for hours mm -hmm. to get my software updated? There's no practical reason. It's just a business decision. Um, well, is it also, so, is it also the, the, like you said, the tradition and the philosophy of, um, you know, for a hundred years, uh, automakers think, well, if you want a better car, you, you get a new car. You, you get another. The improvements come every model year, when as opposed to thinking like software engineers, where sure there can be uh, you know major new releases, but the dot releases we can update you know whenever we want and and often for free. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's the case. That I you could argue that it's planned obsolescence, or you could argue that it's only been a very recent thing that it would be practical to think about uh, improving a car over the air. And it was just Tesla who kind of thought of it and implemented it first because they were clean sheet and the others weren't. But but yes, I mean, even today, it's not the case that car companies will introduce new features and make them available to older cars. Even if they could, they just don't do it as a matter of course. It's not part of their business practices. Um, and that's partially because they want to sell more cars and it's partially because um, they're just not focused on improving the cars already on the road. Uh, in the way that that a, a new company like Tesla has to, because they're learning as they go about a completely new kind of drive technology, um, and ultimately about vehicle automation, which is yet another unrelated thing um, that Tesla is at the forefront of. And again, that has nothing to do with it being an electric car company, mm -hmm. but it has a lot to do with it um, having set up the cars to do over-the-air updates so they can constantly iterate on that collect feedback and make sure that it's um that it's safe and optimized well we'll come back to autonomous cars later but um yeah one, one more question about how uh tesla specifically operates um they you know how did they get such insane quality to the you know someone that comes in and has no experience in this industry and then in various publications can can produce a car that's the best reviewed car in the history of various publications like again was it was it the the hiring and, and things like that but like how come they were able to walk into this game and take it over and do it better than anybody else it's uh, it's a combination of the supreme leader thing where you have a Steve Jobs like character in Musk who is extraordinarily demanding of the team and, and makes decrees and says, we're going to hit these targets. Um, and the fact that he was able to recruit um, a phenomenally experienced group of people to work in the cars. The, the, the fact of the matter is Tesla is not a bunch of Silicon Valley computer nerds tinkering around, you know, banging on steel or aluminum sheets with hammers until a car comes out. The reality is that it's mostly people who are very seasoned in building cars um, and there are a few key changes, but, um, but that it came from a lot of experience. Um, and, and in that sense, it's, uh, it's, it's predictable that if you have someone who is extraordinarily demanding and you, and you assemble a great team that you're going to come out with a great product when you don't have the sort of bureaucratic inertial overhead of everything that came before of, you know, uh, volumes and volumes of, of regulations about your cars that might have been, um, you know, as GM has, that might have been developed 40 years ago um, that take years and years to change. Um, and, and ultimately, I think it comes down to a product-driven organization as, a, as opposed to a 
um, a finance-driven organization, meaning that the goal for Tesla was never make something profitable. It was always just make something good enough that a lot of people want to buy it up until this point, not until their next car will, will they really be worried about profitability. And if you look through the history of cars, Mercedes for a long time built cars based on that notion of let the engineers design the best possible technologies they can, and then the marketing guys will go in and price it. That changed for Mercedes in the 90s when they wanted to continue to grow. It will definitely change for Tesla at some point. That's the nature of American business. It's just that they're still in that growth, build it according to the product guys and the engineers specs phase. Um, and, and that means that they came out with a, a shockingly nice car. Um, the, the Roadster was fine. It was like a heavier Lotus. It, it was okay. But when they came out with the Model S, what shocked everyone was it wasn't just a good electric car. It was, it was one of the best luxury cars on the road, full stop. Um, and that's what really, you know, that, that and the fact that it looks great are what has prompted so many people to buy it, has, has driven the brand equity in it. Um, but it, uh, but it, it should also be noted that because there's so much new tech in the car, they are not considered to be reliable by sources like Consumer Reports or, Famously, or yeah. True Delta. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like many cars, you know, it's important to note also that, that Mercedes um, as a brand is typically not considered to be reliable overall. What is the similarity there? It's that both have an incredible amount of advanced new technology, um, and they're pushing pushing the boundaries of what goes in a vehicle. And as a result, the things tend to break more. It's just a fact. Um, and interestingly, despite the fact that Teslas do break a lot, the owners overwhelmingly say they would buy them again. So they're willing to put up with the with the hassles for the. Um, for what they perceive as the benefits of the car and also the ownership experience and the, and the social um, component to, to owning an EV. Um, Two-part two question. Um, the first one being, what was uh, auto journalism's initial response to Tesla and how has it evolved to where it is today? The initial response of, of the automotive press was, was universal scorn. We've seen this before. It's a startup. Ha ha. What do these people know about cars? It's an EV. We've seen this before. It failed. Um, even when, when they started to send the roadsters to outlets, um, and even when they did get over 200 miles of range, there was still, uh, I, there was still a predisposition to doubt that the thing was real. So the, you know, top gear famously showed the roadster running out of range. Um, and, and Tesla's take on that is that they did it intentionally to, to make good TV. Um, but relatively quickly after that, you started to see more established and more credible outlets and including car and driver where I was at the time say, well, actually this thing, you know, it has its downsides, but it does actually work. It's a real car. Um, so the reception into the, from the tech press obviously was very positive. Um, but the automotive press by and large, um, was pretty down on Tesla. It also didn't help that Tesla was really stingy about giving cars to the press to evaluate. 
and that their PR department has been a mess as long as the company has been in existence. It's been a revolving door. So where journalists are accustomed to getting relatively easy access to demonstrator vehicles to test um, as, a, as almost a birthright, um, with Tesla, it was, you know, it, it, it was like going to see the Pope or something to try and get a car. And that made it very difficult for them to get any good press because you can't write a good review about a car you haven't written. Um, that has started to get better. And, and the Model S is really what changed it. As, as, as journalists started to drive the Model S, um, usually it would be the first time they drove it. They had this light bulb where they said, whoa, this is not. Um, this is not uh, somebody's garage project. This is not like a fake rattly old junk pile. This is a real car, and this is suddenly competitive with some of the best things on the market. And and you started to see that where it won major awards um, from Car and Driver, from Motor Trend, from others, um, from from Consumer Reports because it was such a good car. So at this point, um, the analysis of Tesla cars is that they're great cars, but you still see journalists and especially the ones who've been in Detroit a long time saying, yeah, but the company can't ever survive because it doesn't turn a profit. And so they're still very down on it because um, it's very different from, from what they've experienced in the past. So it's funny because you'll read reviews and you'll, you'll see people saying, this is a great car, but it's unreliable and it's too expensive. Um, and therefore the company is going to fail, but they don't say the same things about, whether it's a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or even a Mercedes S-Class that are similarly very expensive and unreliable um, because those companies have a proven track record and Tesla doesn't. So the, the way that the automotive press covers electric cars and new companies has no precedent because there haven't been any new companies and there haven't been any electric cars from those new companies. So the press is still figuring out how to deal with that. Whereas if you look at the Silicon Valley press, they know all about companies that are in growth mode, that are about losing a lot of money to grow scale before they turn profitable or maybe don't. Um, so they sort of get the Tesla model better, um, but they don't really know as much about the product. So you have to look at the product analysis from Detroit and the business analysis, um, if not from Silicon Valley, then more broadly from financial analysts. Um, who look at the company uh, as a as a different kind of company um, than a GM or a Chrysler, where they're judged on their quarterly margin because they're a mature business. Tesla needs to be judged on the expectation of future marginal profitability as they scale up and on demand. And those are fundamentally different metrics. Right. Well, same exact question, but for the auto industry itself, like, um, what what did Detroit initially think of Tesla, and how has it evolved, and what does Detroit think of Tesla today? Um, Detroit is now very quiet about what they think about Tesla. That you know, GM came out with an extraordinarily snarky release recently, so I'll start today and work backwards. GM said. Um, well, all this hype about the Model 3 is great, effectively, but we have a car that's going to go on sale this year, the Chevy Bolt, with comparable range, and it's real, and you can buy it. Um, and, and Detroit has said, and you know, GM has the advantage, they don't have to make money on the Bolt right away because they're already a profitable enterprise overall. Um, so Detroit still thinks that Tesla is a little bit 
um, uh, sort of off to the side and a little odd, uh, which is obviously contrary to the rest of the press, which looked at the unprecedented reception that the Model 3 got, where now over 300,000 people have put down $1,000 to get a car probably in two years. Um, why is that? Well, Detroit has a way of doing things that works really well. They've put out great cars, and it's not just Detroit, by the way. It's also the Japanese car companies. It's also the German car companies. There's not a huge amount of difference um, in how they're looking at this, with, with a few exceptions, which, which I can get into. Um, but over, you know, Detroit started to look at Tesla and say, oh, wow, they happened to make a decent car when the Model S came out, but they didn't really take it seriously. The car companies didn't really take it seriously. Um, I think until the, the day that there were 100,000 pre-orders before the Model 3 was even shown, um, Detroit didn't really look at it much. The fact that now GM is releasing a kind of um, defensive, snarky release about the Model 3 tells me that they've, they've taken notice. Um, but interestingly, they haven't materially started to gear up for a mass market electric car. And this is an important thing to note is that as we sit here talking today in April of 2016, there's no major car company that is looking at building an electric car with a capacity of more than 50,000 units. And in the U.S., there are 16 and a half million new cars sold every year. So right, right. 50,000 units is nothing. Right. So, um, so there's been progress made, but, but the traditional car companies are looking at it very incrementally. We have you know, X amount to sort of waste on this, and, um, and that means that they're not ramping up massive production capability. Um, there's also no major car company that actually has a plan for building fast charge infrastructure. That's not something we've talked about, but mm-hmm. earlier we talked, you know, we mentioned what are the things holding back the adoption of electric cars? Well, one is battery capacity, um, meaning that batteries are expensive to produce and there's just a finite number of cells being produced every year in the factories that exist. Um, so GM is, is, uh, with a partner in, in Michigan building a factory that can make up to 50,000 battery packs that'll allow a car to go over 200 miles. Tesla's working on a factory that will allow them to build up to 500,000 battery packs. Um, and Tesla said that this is the first of, um, a number of factories like that. Um, but the other thing is that to have a, an electric car as your primary vehicle, for the most part, you can charge it at home and get your 200 miles of range for the next day, and that's fine. But everyone, you know, America is the country of, of, of finding your own road and taking road trips, and right, everyone wants right. to believe that if they need to, they can get in the car and drive somewhere relatively far away. And that just hasn't been the case with electric cars. The fast charge infrastructure is almost non-existent in this country with the exception of Tesla, which just went out and built a proprietary right. charging network. So um, actually, so forgive my ignorance, but so if, if um, GM is, is starting to make steps in the same way, is, is there any industry standard or will GM's charging infrastructure be different than Tesla's charging infrastructure? So there is an industry standard that GM is working on. Um, there, there are really two fast charge standards 
Um, and then there's Tesla. So there's the Chatamo standard, which primarily is used in, by Japanese companies. And there's the CCS standard, which is primarily used by U.S. and German um, companies. They're still, uh, they're still finalizing those standards. I think, uh, well, Chatamo is finalized. Um, CCS, they're working on rolling out higher uh, wattage versions. So this is a little technical, but the ability to fast charge your car boiled down to its simplest component is based on how much wattage comes out of the fast charger. Um, the Tesla chargers today operate at up to 120,000 watts. The Chatamo and CCS standards um, typically cap out at between 50 and, and 80,000 watts, and they're, they need to increase the power of those so that they can fast charge more quickly. But more important than that is that they're just is no plan to roll out a coherent network of either Chatamo or CCS chargers across the U.S. So while, every, while all the big manufacturers are now talking about rolling out EVs, people who buy them will not, have no expectation that there's going to be a coherent way for them to get from whether it's San Francisco to L.A. or Boston to Miami. Um, where Tesla has made that extremely reliable and, and predictable. Um, Tesla has also put a network across I-80 and across the southern route. So you can, you can drive north or south or east or west across the country. You simply can't do that without, you know, an overnight charge stop every, um, uh, every 200 miles in any of the cars that are being talked about now. So can they do it? Yes. Will they do it? Absolutely. But the question is when. Again, it's that they haven't even committed to a plan to do it yet. Um, and, and that's telling about their seriousness about electric cars at this point. Well, so my, my, just my personal observation on that is, again, that's the difference between being a startup and being GM, where if Tesla doesn't make the infrastructure, um, their cars will never be successful and they'll die. Um, yep. and, and GM doesn't have to have s success in the electric cars until they have to. And if electric cars don't succeed, well, then they never spent the money. So it is sort of that classic, um, the, the incumbents thing of, well, we don't have to, our, our survival doesn't depend on making this insane investment, whereas Tesla's does. Right. You could argue that for GM or for BMW or for, uh, Honda, it would be bad business for them to invest um, a huge amount of money in something that's not proven and isn't guaranteed to give them a return on investment in the way that Tesla um, has and continues to do. All right, I, I, I don't. I'm, I, I, Tesla's fascinating, so I, I hesitate to move off it. But um, I, I want to talk more generally about um, um, digital technology, computer technology in cars. Um, because computers have been in cars for a long time, right? This uh, uh, adding computers to cars is not is not a new thing. Yes, that's right. Computerized engine management systems have been around um, for decades now, um, and connected cars have now been around for a while. If you you know for at least um, it's almost two decades, if you if you think about over-the-air traffic services and so on. Or like OnStar um, or something like that. Right, right. OnStar was kind of the first big rollout of, in 96 of, um, of connected car services, and it was, it was a little clunky then. It's gotten a lot better since. And um, you could argue that 
what Tesla has done with over-the-air updates is really the biggest sea change to connected car technology since OnStar rolled out. Well, what about what about things um, technology that that we would traditionally say consumer facing, but uh, really I'm I mean driver facing. Like you know, I can remember in the early aughts when all of a sudden I could go out and buy a Garmin and stick it on my dashboard and. Um, you know, all of a sudden have GPS tell me where to go. And like, what an insane, like that was, you know, this very well. I I'm someone that grew up thinking of cars as I really didn't give a shit about them because they were just there to take me where I wanted to go. I was not in love with the technology. I'm, I was not a car nerd. You know, there are, there are car nerds in the same way that there are, you know, computer nerds and, and phone nerds and, and, you know, video game nerds and everything else. Um, but the first, so the, my first experience of like, oh wait, um, there's something else interesting here was, was like GP, GPS coming to the dashboard and, and things like satellite radio. So, um, tell, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Like when, when things start to start to appear on my dashboard that all of a sudden are like, oh, my car can be smart. My car can do things that, um, I, I didn't anticipate. Yeah. I think it started in the 80s. Um, there were a couple things that happened in the 80s. There was the 86 Buick Riviera, which had a mm. cathode ray tube TV in the dashboard. Wow. That um, it was a touch screen. Wow. Um, you know, monochrome, but it allowed you to operate basic control. It wasn't nav, but it allowed you to operate basic controls in the mm-hmm. vehicle through through a touch screen. And at the time, it was, you know, slow and clunky, and it wasn't very pretty, and and drivers didn't even like it because it was extremely distracting to have to navigate through a little tiny TV in the dashboard. I think it was like four by three inches. Um, But that was one of the first things. And then there were also cars that started to, you know, talk with a voice to tell you your lights were on or your door was ajar. Um, And that was just kind of a peek into what was, was to come, where then in the 80s, it was actually the 80s where some of the first NAV systems debuted, um, in, in Japan and they were based on, uh, on dead reckoning and not, um, not on GPS. What, what's dead, meaning that, what, what do you mean? What that dead reckoning? Dead reckoning means that there, uh, you sort of tell it where you start and then it uses inputs like how fast the car is ah, going, what okay. direction it's going in, gotcha. a gyroscope, um, you know, the, the way that, uh, that, that missiles worked before there was GPS, um, they, you know, they sort of figured out where you were in the road. Right, right. But, it, but those were very rare and very expensive. And then even the GPS systems that, um, that debuted in the 90s were still uh, extraordinarily expensive and not very accurate. It wasn't until the government allowed the more accurate GPS signal to be consumed by the public um, around the turn of the century that the NAV systems actually started to get pretty good. Um, and then uh, in the mid-aughts, uh, it was the, you really you got the first real connected car thing um, other than OnStar, which was you got you know traffic data coming into the to the nav systems in real time so they could route you around uh, traffic problems. And that's where the, that's where it's like, wow, my car actually is smarter than me when it comes to how to get from A to B. That was the moment where the cars, um, started to have, as you put it, driver-facing technology that was beyond a, a motor full of explosions to get you from A to B. And I, 
I'm probably not right about this, but why why didn't that all just instantaneously become standard? Um, and I, again, I know I'm biased because I think you know as soon as as soon as um, touch technology um, uh, became standard in one phone, every phone had it. You know what I mean? So I, again, I'm used to the gadget um, paradigm where. Um, oh, you can do this with a phone? Well, then every phone will be able to do this. So um, am, am I right in thinking that um, like that's kind of been slow to roll out? You know, things like every car should have GPS, GPS standard in the dash at this point, right? Uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I think, though, that there are a few things that have held it back. One is that integrating any component for a car is a lot more complicated than for a phone, right? How many times a day does your phone or did your phone crash or do something weird or freeze up? Obviously not acceptable in a car mm-hmm. um, that you're driving. So integration is orders of magnitude harder. To how, many sure times, that it's... how many times does Skype go down when you're trying to record a podcast interview? <laughs> right, exactly, which is why we're talking on a good old-fashioned cellular connection. Yeah, go on, um, sorry. And then the other thing is just uh, that car companies figured out they could charge a thousand to three thousand dollars for for that feature and and some people would be willing to pay it and others wouldn't but they'd you know make more money overall if they made it an expensive um option so we're just now getting to the point where uh where mainstream cars are starting to typically be equipped with that but i mean even today you can buy um you can you can buy mainstream family sedans that don't have navigation in them um, you could also argue that because of the time and money it takes to integrate those systems, your phone is always going to have a better navigation device and a better music player. Um, and certainly, you know, Ford with the, with the sync system, um, that debuted, debuted in the mid aughts kind of said that they said, you know, we can try to do this, but people are, you know, they, they saw the trend. They said people are going to use their phones for nav and entertainment so let's just build a system that allows you to plug your phone in and so that you can listen to the nav and the, and the music and, and make calls over the car's speakers and mic, but we don't have to build in all that tech that's probably going to be obsolete by the time the car goes into production. Um, and it's definitely the case that, that there's no nav system in a car that works as well as, uh, and, and certainly some people could, you know, will disagree with me, but in, in my experience, there's no nav system in a car to this day that works as well as good old plain old Google Maps app on your on your iPhone. Well, that makes me think of the question, what about um, the traditional car makers and their competency with things like software, with things like user interface design? Um, uh I'm not asking you to to shit on anybody's competency in particular, but is that also something else that like they they until very recently did Detroit have um, engineering talent that would be capable of of designing good tech inside cars? It, yes and no. I mean, if you look at technology, I mean, broadly speaking, Detroit, um, Munich, uh, Hiroshima, they have amazing engineers when it comes to technology and computing and um and and when you look at some of the technology systems that have been developed within the auto industry even you know things like stability control systems um that are unbelievably sophisticated and incredibly effective they have it when it comes to 
user experience and user interface, that's a relatively newer, um, in, uh, it's a relatively new competency that, that has been hard for them to, to compete on. Um, you know, it's just a fact that Apple and Google have more experience with UX, more users and more engineers than any one car company is, is, is ever going to have. Um, you mentioned like, um, ne- uh, I can't remember what you said now, but uh, uh, you're making me think of like extending the tech now outwards. And so things like automated braking and collision avoidance and auto parking and things like that, um, so if that also has been available for a while, why has, and this is going to lead us into a talk about autonomous cars, um, why has that, if, if all of a sudden, I feel like in the last five years, autonomous vehicles is suddenly a possibility, and to my mind, that came out of nowhere. But apparently not, because all that technology has been available on the high end with things like auto parking and collision avoidance. So why has that taken so long uh, to become standard? Um, well, it, bits and pieces of those technologies have been available and are available, but as, again, as we sit here today in April 2016, there is no reliable technology available at anything resembling a reasonable cost that allows true vehicle automation. There are bits and pieces of it, um, but up until recently, the components were expensive, so, you know, specifically talking about collision avoidance or collision mitigation braking systems, um, those have only been available in relatively high-end cars and only for the last, uh, gee, I should know the exact date they became available, but probably Mercedes was one of the first to do it, and it was maybe 10 years ago. Um, and that's because you need a radar sensor. Um, you often need a, a relatively high-precision um, high camera and computational ability as well. Um, it's predicated upon having, um, an ABS pump and there, there are a lot of pieces of hardware that, that cost real money, uh, that are required for these systems. And so just, just recently, a bunch of automakers have now committed to making collision mitigation braking standard across the board within the next few years. Um, but when it comes to true self-driving, that technology is still really on the bleeding edge. So even, you know, I think Universally, everyone agrees that Tesla's system is the most sophisticated in, um, if not of the sensors, then on, the, on how it actually works in, in any production car. And even that is a long, long, long way from being what we would call a truly automated car. Um, it might help to, to talk about sort of some industry jargon, but there's level one, two, and three okay. automated yeah, vehicles. Yeah, explain that. Explain that. So level one is where there's kind of one thing handled by a computer system in the car. So that might be like collision mitigation braking. There's a radar system. It sees that you're closing in too rapidly on the the car in front of you, and it applies the brakes. So it just does that one thing in isolation. Um, Level two is where multiple... um, Multiple kinds of automation are combined. So the... uh, Tesla Model S has that and what they call their autopilot convenience features where you can set it so it both follows the car in front of you um, with its cruise control, brakes if it needs to if the car in front of you slams on the brakes, and it also uses a camera um, and and radar to keep it in a lane so that you don't have to steer while it's it's in a lane. So it can stay in one lane um, in 
uh, in certain situations where, you know, meaning the lane markings are pretty good. The road isn't too bumpy. Um, it's not too rainy or snowy or even sunny, which can, which can occlude the camera's ability to see. Um, and, uh, and where traffic isn't too crazy, it, um, where people don't, you know, cut right in front of you unexpectedly, although they do. Okay. Um, dealing with that scenario, but that that's level two, level three is where in certain situations, the driver can actually stop paying attention and nobody has level three, um, on the road in a production car today. That's mm -hmm. what, you know, mm -hmm. Google has experimentally, um, you know, in, in their little egg shaped cars and, and lots of other companies are running those experimentally. No one has, has put a date on when they're going to make available to the public an actual level three car where you can stop paying attention some of the time and have the car handle most, um, most of the, the functions. And then the other levels beyond that are where eventually you, you, the car can drive itself all the time and you might not even need a steering wheel. And we might not um, even need stoplights and things like that. Right. 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 If, if all the cars on the road were, mm -hmm. were fully automated. Okay. Well, yeah. let, let me, let me interrupt and, and sort of then ask the question I've asked before, which is, um, Again, from my layman's perspective, I five years ago I didn't even know that autonomous cars were a possibility, and then all of a sudden it was everywhere. Um, so, from someone that you know watches the industry is, is is in the industry, did this come out of nowhere? Like, have people been thinking about this, and did it take people like Google again to to start pushing this forward? Like, where where did this all of a sudden come come from? The, the idea to have cars um, drive themselves has been around for, you know, decades. Since the there Jetsons, been, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you have things like the DARPA Challenge, which have been around for, for over a decade, where you have groups um, of researchers putting sensors and computers on cars to allow them to, to drive themselves. It's really just an outgrowth of robotics and AI attached um, attached to vehicles. Um, I think what, what's driving it right now is that suddenly you have a lot of companies and whether that's Apple or Google, um, or, or Tesla or, or the, um, or the, the, the big OEMs like, like GM and, and Toyota and, and Nissan is that they look at the size of the automotive, um, automotive market and the potential for disruption that, that would come from having automated cars. I mean, disruption to everything from um, who buys cars and when and for what purpose to to the taxi and livery markets, um, to parking, to, uh, to to really who who the dominant players are in automotive, whoever it is that um, whoever it is that that makes a reliable automotive uh, automated car first will likely capture a huge portion um, of the market, whether that's through direct sales or through creating a fleet of cars and, and, and running them like Uber, where they pick you up and take you where you want to go. Um, and because transportation is, is, is you know, uh, so many billions of dollars in, in revenue a year, suddenly it's more interesting than, you know, virtual reality augmented games or whatever there's a, there's a finite amount of money that's going to be spent on that, but on transportation, it's orders of magnitude more money. So therefore, big companies 
um, are investing a lot. But in, l- in let me interrupt you because you said something interesting that I hadn't thought about before. You're saying that the reason this race is happening is because uh, people believe that the first person to get there will capture such a large share that that it'll it'll sort of be a winner take all situation. Um, I, I wouldn't say winner take all. Just that whoever gets there first and reliably will so start to dominate the market that it'll be hard for others to catch up. Um, I, I don't think it will be winner take all. I still think there will be lots of companies out there doing it. I think the current OEMs will have very strong entries. Um, I think it's likely that Apple and Google will um, will work with big OEMs. In fact, some of those announcements have already been made. Um, but the amount of money that can be made every year to the the first movers in the space is so astronomically large, and the um, and the downside to the guys who aren't that first mover is so astronomically large that um, if you have one company come out even two years ahead of the others, it, it could be a fundamental uh, disruption to the to the industry. Uh, Mike, let's finish with two questions that are in depth because you and I have personally had hours of conversations about these two questions. Um, but first of all, um, again, you and I both have friends in, in Silicon Valley and, and you and I both have friends in Detroit. And when we talk to the people in Silicon Valley and you ask them, um, will, will there be self-driving cars, you know, a large number of them on the road, Silicon Valley says within five years, when you talk to Detroit people, they say no way. Um, so without asking you to predict <laughs> Um, you know, when will there be a large number of, let's say, level three, because that's great that you made that distinction. When when will there be a large number of level three autonomous cars on the road? If I had a crystal ball and I don't, I would say I would say we're still a decade plus from a large number of level three cars on the road. As we sit here, they still don't, even the most advanced systems do not work reliably in snow, for example, in uh, torrential rain. Um, There's a lot of work that still has to be done. Now, that said, I think that the progress in level two cars getting better and better will be significant. And we're going to start to see level two systems like Tesla's like the ones that lots of other companies have introduced in, in more uh, conservative applications um, over the next five years. Um, but I'd be surprised if within the next five years we see a level three car go on sale. If anyone does it, it would be limited to very specific places where they're confident in the road markings and so forth. Like, you know, Tesla, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Google has a large fleet of self, you know, level three cars. Google might start, you know, launch a pilot um, in specific municipalities, right? You could, you might have a municipality like New York or London um, where traffic and pollution are absolutely horrible. And they might say, Hey, we're going to pull the trigger and, and do a test. And we're going to put in the, the lane markings and the signals and whatever else is necessary to make sure that these things can operate reasonably well. But if you're talking about, uh, you know, someone who's living in Montana, when are they going to be able to um, buy a car that drives itself reliably everywhere that they go? Uh, that's probably decades out. 
So is that because the greatest hurdles are technical ones, technological ones, or are they regulatory slash um, legal and, and um, you know, I'm going to get sued ones? Um, if you asked me a few years ago, I would have said that regulatory hurdles were a really big deal. But it's become so evident so fast that automated cars, when used, as they're designed, are so much more uh, or so much less likely to get into accidents than humans that regulators have actually been reasonably good at, at keeping a pace um, with the reality of the technology. So, I mean, it's not as good as it should be. I mean, California is still going back and forth on whether um, they're going to require the ability for a, a level three car to have a driver backup. Um, and, and, there's certainly discussions like that happening, but the reality is that those cars are still not quite ready for mass market. So as we sit here today, it is still a technology issue that's going to prevent that. Now, maybe in the next few years, the sensors will get a lot better. I'm sure they will. Um, if we have this conversation in five years, we'll probably start to say, hey, these there are these examples of cars that can drive pretty much anywhere in any weather and do it. Um, more let, reliably. Let me, let me inter interrupt you because I have a question about that, again, that I have no knowledge of. So we're talking a lot about cars with sensors on them, but what about this idea that you could create, you know, a network in the physical world where, you know, you, you sometimes hear about cars talking to each other? Or what about the, this sounds, you know, hugely expensive or maybe dumb, but what about putting sensors, you know, out on highways and things like that? So, like, as a car is going down the road, it's pinging and getting information and delivering information and things like that. Like, could could that be a way forward where you create this infrastructure where there's a smart infrastructure everywhere? It could be, but then you look at the fact that in many states we can't even repave the road. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> there are many highways that that you can't even drive over without blowing up a tire. Yeah, but then at the so same the time, I would push back on that by saying when when cars were a new technology, their biggest hurdle was there were no paved roads, and so they succeeded in getting you know the entire world to create uh, car worthy roads, basically from from one door to any other door, at least in the developed world. So, I mean, that was a huge investment in capital and technology. It was, and it, and it was the, uh, the national defense interstate system that allowed us to, uh, to, to take long-distance vehicle travel at high speed for granted, which was, which was essentially an extension of the New Deal. So I would argue that for that to happen, it would take a new New Deal. And even if Bernie Sanders is elected president, and even if he somehow miraculously gets the legislature to start funding massive public works initiatives, my guess is that his first priority would not be to spend the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars needed to equip the roads with these sensors. And the, the, the flip side is that it's probably the case that the cars will get good enough on their own before the highways um, would to, to allow this. And if you think about the average U.S. car being 10 years old, you can't really count on car-to-car -car communication. Um, you can't count on a fleet of all automated cars because of the number of, 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 of non-smart cars that are going to be on the road for decades to come. Um, so 
is it possible? I mean, who knows? Ten years ago, I said the same thing about electric cars. Not possible, not going to happen. But I'm, I'm willing to go on the record today and say that smart highways probably are not going to be a material part of our lives for, for decades to come. Smart cars probably will be a lot sooner. Hmm. All right. So, so second part question, uh, final question then would be, can you buy into the vision that the, the, the super utopian vision where um, within our lifetime, there will be an infrastructure and a culture where maybe we don't own our own car. There's just this autonomous fleet of, <laughs> of cars roaming around our streets available when we need them um, available on demand and a car is a utility and it's not necessarily something um, that, that we own that's our own property. It, within my lifetime, given that maybe I, I'll live another 40, 50 years, do you, do you feel like that would be possible? I think it'll be possible that that model will exist. I think it'll take a lot longer for everyone to want to move to that model. We're a, we're a country that loves instant gratification. So there's as long as people are able to afford a vehicle that's sitting at their beck and call outside available at zero seconds notice, my guess is that people are going to prefer that. Um, the flip side is that a lot of people would like the reduced cost and hassle of just using the car when they want it. So I think we will start to see significant adoption of that. But I don't think in our lifetimes we're going to see personal car ownership go away or even personal car ownership become the minority of sales. Um, but it, it could happen more quickly. I and mean, I think in general, your, your premise that we'll move toward that is probably, uh, is probably valid um, because it, it's inherently more efficient. But if you, if you look at you know, the most efficient thing, it's not always how we do things. It sometimes takes hundreds of years to get there. Uh, well, Mike Duchesne, my friend, um, despite the fact that, as I said, you and I have talked about this for hours previously, um, I feel like this episode I've learned more than <laughs> almost any other episode that I've done. Um, so thank you for thank you for coming on the show and, and educating me, first and foremost, but also um, uh, educating the audience on, on the history and possibly the future of, of uh, tech and cars and how they're coming together. Always fun to chat about it with you, Brian. 